Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Bowen Salon North, Harrogate's very own TED Style Talks, sponsored by Bowen Solicitors. In a time of polarised debate, Bowen Salon North gives you the time and space to learn from the experts and make up your own mind. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining talk from our expert guest speaker, Dr Kate Fox, exploring revolutionary women in history, recorded live as part of Berwyn Salon North, uncontrollable or revolutionary. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Helen. I don't always, like, mention the doctorate thing, and I'm aware that's a lack of assertiveness, probably, in a certain way, but also my doctorate um, was, was my, my research was mainly in stand-up comedy, which really surprises people. So they're like, what, are you going to need a, a PhD to go on live at the Apollo now? And I'm like, no, 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 you won't need a doctorate to go on live at the Apollo, not a PhD. A penis, yes, but not, <laughs> not a PhD. Um, but um, I'm actually, that's interesting, I'm finding I'm secretly pleased that you said the doctor thing, so that's interesting to know now. Anyway, knowing it live. Um, hello, live people, yes. See, I kind of... The weird thing is, like, in a Zoom performance, you do at least get to know, like, quite a lot about the audience, because you can see the living room or wherever they are, can't you? You can nosy, and you are now literally a blank... or not literally, you're a blank canvas. Um, but um, that's all right, I can cope with that. Um, what I was going to start talking about um, was what I think all... Um, uh, three of the talks this evening have in common, and that's a focus on voice, women's voices, voices generally. And for me, sort of thinking about voice and experiencing how my voice, my literal voice, has been treated in certain contexts was probably what led more than anything um, to my book. Because after university, I trained, first of all, as a radio newsreader. And um, I did a sort of postgrad at Trinity and All Saints in Leeds. And I literally, my naivety was such, I had literally no idea that my voice, this accent, would in any way be an impediment to me reading the news. I, like, I genuinely didn't know, which to me is like Greg Wallace off MasterChef thinking he could advertise L'Oreal shampoo type thing and thinking there was no issue with that. Um, and my radio tutor soon let me know it might be a bit of an issue because actually he himself had kept a Bradford accent um, and it had been an issue. And he'd kind of loved local ra radio and local radio journalism, but it had still been an issue there. And he said, you know, whatever you do, I can always send a, a tip of you reading bulletins in advance so that they know you can kind of go into newsreader voice mode. Um, and and so, I, so I did that, but nonetheless, um, it took me quite a long time to get on air in my first job up at Metro Radio in Newcastle, um, where the first actual news story I covered, incidentally, um, was about a dead frog found trapped in a bag of lettuce in Whitley Bay. Um, 
from Sainsbury's, as I recall. Irrelevant detail, but for some reason it stays with me. Anyway, um, <laughs> that was my actual first news story. Um, but the, the programme director there was like, you, with that voice, no, you are basically too northern to go on air. Um, so you can go and report, but we're not going to have you reading bulletins. And I did, I was aware then of the paradox of, hang on, you know, we were all about local news, local radio, local stations, surely local voice. But my local, my flat-voweled voice was not wanted. Um, and kind of over time, I sort of moved around to different radio stations, still had some issues in some places. Galaxy Radio, which was a bit more trendy, commercial dance music, they were kind of okay with it, and I was very welcomed there. Until I went to work in Galaxy Manchester, and they had an American radio boss come in, and he kind of did a sort of survey of what was on air, and I was going to be able to read the news on the breakfast show, but they had um, a male and a female co-presenter on the breakfast show. And he said, well, we've done research. Listeners just get female voices confused. They can't tell them apart. So you can only have one female voice on your breakfast show. So, like, not in 1832 or 1982, but in 2002, actually. So I wasn't allowed to read the news. So I kind of had this, all these urges within me to kind of ex just literally have my voice heard. Meanwhile, it, it turned out I was kind of also a, a poet and wanted to do creative things. <clears throat> but even now, as I began to, to research the book, um, I, I think there is something about the intersection of society still in the UK, finding it difficult to hear northern voices in certain roles and to hear female voices in certain roles. And then, you know, you put a northern female voice in there, that's a double whammy. Add any other marginality, you know, of ethnicity or disability or sexuality, triple, quadruple whammy. And actually, if you think about it, and it kind of, I love trying to kind of have this as a bit of a, a thought experiment. You know, can you imagine a, a, a northerner reading national news bulletins? Because we have the odd northern voice, don't we? The occasional one. We had Steph McGovern reading the business news, and now, of course, presenting Steph's packed lunch on Channel 4. But Steph McGovern was once offered £20 by an audience member to get rid of her northern accent. Um, and a boss called her in and actually told her, could you soften it? It makes you sound stupid. And again, like, literally, she's, she's talked about that and kind of has lived with that and resisted it. But going back in history, um, Wilfred Pickles from Halifax was maybe the, f well, he was the first northerner to read the news nationally. But he was only put on radio, the equivalent then of Radio 4, during the Second World War in order to confuse the Germans. <laughs> like, literally, not making that obvious, literally why he was put on there. But. It only lasted three days because, again, not making this up, so many listeners from the south of England complained that there was a northerner reading the news. So basically, British people would rather be invaded by Hitler <laughs> than have a northerner reading the news. 
So until that has changed, I will remain unconvinced that the, the good work that is being done to get Northern voices more recognised has fully taken root. Um, but nonetheless, I'm hoping, basically, with my work, to contribute uh, to that, because actually, I think underlyingly, and we've definitely heard that from Nan and Anne this evening, there are so many issues around gender and class in terms of who is heard, how they're heard. Um, so, uh, quick question. Put your hands up if you have heard of Bordesia. Hands up, we've heard of Bordesia. Nearly everyone's heard of Bordesia. Brilliant. Okay, um, now put your hands up if you've heard of Carti Mandua. Carti Mandua. Basically, no, not maybe one hand there, one there, good, but basically we've not. Right, and I hadn't till I started researching the book, but Carti Mandua was a, was a warrior queen who lived at the same time as Bordesia, um, kind of around um, the, the first century AD. And she ruled, she ruled the Brigantes tribe. She was the, a leader, rather, of the Brigantes tribe who ruled an area from approximately kind of the wash, like including here, up to kind of about where Hadrian's Wall is, a vast area. And, and she was a, because the, the Celts had mat matriarchal um, leadership, she was a kind of a, 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 the born ruler. And she took a consort, she married Venusius, but she was the leader of the tribe. And she was kind of sort of worshipped in tandem with the goddess Bridget, who was the goddess of smithing and prophecy. And um, she was seen as a very powerful figure. We only know a little bit about her from the Roman historian Tacitus. And the Romans generally were no fans of the Brigantes. But Cartimandua, instead of doing what Bordesia did, which was to basically raise an army, try to defeat the Romans, didn't, loads of her people got killed, she got killed. Cartimandua kind of made deals in a very pragmatic way with the Romans to, to keep the land safe, her people safe, they paid some taxes, they kind of got along, it seems she was probably quite a strategic leader. At some point, she dumps Venusius and goes off with Volocatus, an armour-bearer, um, and Venusius is quite annoyed by this and eventually does lead some uprisings against her. So, you know, at the time it would have been like Angie and Den and the divorce, but instead of the Queen Vic being at stake, it was like their entire land and the tribe. Um, and... Um, eventually, um, Venusius was successful in the uprising, and Cartimandua sort of disappears from history at this point. Possibly she went off to Rome, where she may have visited during her lifetime. Possibly she went to Chester, where there was a Roman garrison. But oh, possibly she was killed. We don't know. But the point is, we don't know about Cartimandua, and she was this amazing northern queen who ruled for at least 30 years um, and lived at the same time as Bordesia. Partly we don't know because history's written by the victors, partly but Bordesia wasn't ultimately a victor, but Queen Victoria was obsessed with Bordesia and identified with her, and that's part of the reason, or oversimplifying, um, that she is writ large in our history. I only discovered Carti Mandua on a weird intuition, which was, um, when I was doing my research for my PhD, I, so I was mainly looking at um, how 
Northern comedians express Northern identity in their stand-up. And I was particularly interested in Northern women comedians and how they express Northern identity in different ways, but in equally trying to resist the stereotypes ways. And, I, and then I started looking, and I was like, oh, as, as Nan has so eloquently shown, um, you know, we, just, we, we forget women all the time if they don't fit into our narrow narratives. And I just thought, I bet we've probably forgotten like a really important queen at some point. Like I genuinely just had that thought. Google was handily there. I was like, Northern warrior queen. First of all, I found warrior queens who were buried in East Yorkshire with their chariots and their weapons. Um, a couple of them, most famously, at Wetwang, which is the best place name to say. So I'll just say it again. Wetwang, that's where they were in Wetwang, and I was like, ha-ha, Northern Warrior Queens, see, didn't know about them. Um, and we only have those sort of chariot burials um, in Northern France, it's not a thing elsewhere. And then I came across Carty Mandua, and there has been a little bit of research on her, a woman called Nikki Howarth wrote a book, the new book Northerners by Brian Groom mentions her too, which I was very happy about, um, but basically she's been forgotten. So. There are many other women, it turns out, who have been forgotten or lost, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of them and then wrap up. But I suspect I've already massively overgotten. Oh, okay, I've got 12 more minutes to do this. All the northern women ever. Uh, no. Although, honestly, that was kind of when I was writing the show and doing the book that I wanted to include in the end every northern woman ever because I began to feel there were so many that I didn't know about. Um, as I say, it started actually, or as Helen said, it started originally as a show. It was commissioned by the Great Exhibition of the North in 2018. It's probably not vastly known about here in Harrogate because it was a thing that happened in Newcastle Gateshead when the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, decided that the way to heal the North-South divide before the term levelling up had been invented was via the means of culture. A festival in Newcastle would heal the divide and also he would bring culture to Newcastle Gateshead and all would be good. Um, which was good for me, because just at the point I was finishing the PhD and wanted to share more of my research about northern women and how they kind of tend to get pushed aside, um, I was able to pitch for a commission to the festival for this show called Where There's Muck, There's Bras, um, which is, of course, based on the, on the pun, Where There's Muck, There's Brass. Um, it makes me very happy and satisfied when someone who doesn't have flat vowels is unable to pronounce the pun of the show because they say brass and bras the same way. Very satisfying. Um, anyway, this makes me a bit too happy. Um, so, and, and I kind of knew they would go for it because so much of the rest of the festival stuff was quite male-focused. By accident, of course, um, but also... It's complex, isn't it? Um, but when we think about Northern identity, so often, if you just think Northerner, and you ask people to name a Northerner, accidentally, they will name a bloke, you know, and, th and there's the stereotype, I suppose, of the northern curmudgeons, the Jeffrey Boycotts, the Michael Parkinson type thing. Michael Parkinson, who's so northern, he's sort of named after a northern ginger cake, um, which incidentally, 
parking became a bit of a regional marker when I was going round the north doing my show. And I realised, you know, some regions call it ginger cake, some call it parking. Um, and I began then to recognise the north is not the united body of togetherness. <laughs> one would have thought. Who knew? Um, so on the count of three, if you could just think about what you call a, I can't hold one up, but basically I'll call it quite neutrally a bread roll. So you know a bread roll. Think of a bread roll. So on the count of three, we'll have a, a gentle, hopefully non too saliva spreading, um, shout of what your bread roll is called. Um, hold it in there. Was that a male voice speaking first? Of course it was a male voice speaking first. Of course. Did you know in meetings the average length of time that silence can pass before it's broken by a male voice is only three seconds, but by a woman it's 70... Anyway, <coughs> sorry. Right. <coughs> Bread roll. One, two, three. Five. Oh, lots, a lot went on there, didn't it? Bap was strong, but I heard Stotty. I heard Balm from the Lancastrians. I heard bread cake. Where, a bun? A bun, of course, here in Yorkshire. Where's a bread cake from? Hull. Hull. Sorry, Hullensians. Um, I'm just realising I've not mentioned any northern women, and I better crack on. But I want to be <laughs> the point. It's been a long time, you know. You get a stage time, what do you do? Right. Um, uh, <clears throat> my point is, pan-northern sounds like maybe a new type of casserole, but it's actually just an impossible dream that, kind of seriously, if I could mention as many women from all parts of the North as possible, and as many times in history and up to now as possible, there might be a sense of the diversity of this group of amazing women. Um, so I'm going to do that in very rapid-fire fashion now, because how much more time has passed? It's all right. TED-style talk. This is what they do in TED Talks, isn't it? They talk about loads of other stuff for ages and preamble and then cram the important bit into the last seven minutes. It's just what Brené Brown did. Right, OK, so, Northern Women. Um, Hilda of Whitby, one of my favourites. Definitely um, underrepresented uh, in many ways, even though lots of us, of course, know about Hilda of Whitby. But actually, she was an important teacher, um, a facilitator of um, Northern identity, actually, at a time when it was barely developing. Um, and she founded the Abbey at Whitby. Um, she also, crucially, hosted the Synod of Whitby. She was trusted to try and get the two sides together, Celtic Christianity, Roman Christianity, at a crucial point in the church's history where it was going to try and decide which way to go. Um, so she had to be deeply strategic, political, practical, yet she was also a compassionate woman who was called mother by everyone in the mixed abbey. Whitby was a mixed abbey because we didn't have the thing of the separation. We didn't have the thing of women being the chattels, being owned by men. At this point, before the Norman and Roman invasions, women were just equal. And I found that so interesting to go back into history and find a time before what feels like a linear unfolding of the inevitable subordination of women. Um, so, but you go into the gift shop at Whitby Abbey, would it be Hilda of Whitby that we think is the important thing? No, it's Dracula, <laughs> who's a man 
doesn't exist, is dead, kills people. It's like a wall-to-wall Dracula. Anyway, um, Lily Parr, uh, another of my favourites, a footballer, one of the many sportswomen that Claire Balding, actually, and other um, researchers and historians have begun really thinking about um, the working-class football women of the pre um, or the post First World War period. She was one of the greatest footballers that's ever lived. Not just, you know, she didn't have uh, what her manager called the best left foot in the world just for a woman, but the best left foot in the world, full stop. Six foot one, scored over 800 of her team's 900 goals in her 20 year playing career with them. A high point of her career, 1920, a game at Goodison Park in front of an audience of 53,000 people, or a crowd, football crowd of 53,000 people, just the year before the FA banned women from football grounds because the game was not suitable for ladies. So we would have had this peak of women's football, but it was kind of stopped in its tracks. Um, She was unconventional. She lived openly with a woman at a time when that wasn't done. She smoked woodbines sometimes during matches. Um, (laughs) And while she was receiving treatment, uh, age 62, for breast cancer, throughout her treatment, uh, and she uh, said, it's taken me 62 years to get these, and now they're taking them away from me. Um, I think the spirit of northern resilience was strong in her. Five minutes, who knew, Rosie? Not enough northern women mentioned. So I'm going to get loads into this last bit. Okay, so who else have we? Um, I tried to steer away from the obvious women, um, even though they would be in there. So the Brontes had the writer's chapter, because how could you not? But also Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle, who actually wrote the first science fiction novel, The Blazing World, back in the 17th century, at a point when women had only written 0.0001% of all books. She wrote 23 of them, including this very strange, eccentric, interesting science fiction novel. Um, And people accused her husband of writing her books for her and told her that she ought to get on with women's pursuits like spinning. But she said that for her, writing was a kind of spinning. Um, Loads of the women in my book could have been played by Maxine Peake because... (laughs) Maxine Peake, as we know, along with Saran Jones and Sarah Lancashire, is the officially licensed (laughs) player of Northern Women. So actually, as a shortcut, if you don't want to read the book, just see who Maxine Peake's played and they'll be like a really interesting, relevant Northern woman. Um, But she is no relation to Tim Peake, the astronaut. However, he is relevant because he's often cited as the first British astronaut. He is, of course, not the first British astronaut. Helen Sharman, exactly. Helen Sharman from Sheffield, 25 years ago was. And she's a really interesting example of how quickly women can be forgotten or erased. She kind of went up into space after an X Factor-style programme to find uh, astronauts and I think she did retire a bit from public life afterwards because she was fed up of mainly being asked, how did you go to the toilet in space? Which, while intriguing, is annoying. Um, But actually, she spoke out when Tim Peake was called the first official astronaut and said, I think you're fine, I was. Um, So... I also wanted to talk about loads of other women, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read um, this last bit of the book Um, because there's something about a line 
from Cartimandua with her hammer to the working women in factories and mills who were often forgotten and written out. And as we'll read in Nan's book, you know, lots of them did develop voices and have voices, but are so easily forgotten and erased. Um, and there's the sculptor, Barbara Hepworth, with her hammer. So I just thought about the hammer, um, and it also pops up in a fictional show that I think has done more for Northern identity than you, uh, Northern female identity than I would ever have imagined. We'll see as we get to the end. <clears throat> Imagine that hammer was first wielded by the women of Cartimandua's tribe, a time when they could not even have imagined that women could ever be told they were not capable enough to shape their own weapons, necklaces and destinies, just as they imagined the goddess Bridget did. She who they sculpted and painted and evoked in their stories, and who was a smith, a prophet and a poet. They do not say... If you can see it, you can be it. But perhaps it's to that rhythm that the hammer slams down. It clangs through history, liquid iron hot in the cauldrons the pendle witches peered into, to see the future when it felt like they had little power at all beyond whatever they could muster in their imaginations. It echoed as the suffragettes broke windows with hammers inscribed, better broken windows than broken promises. Furious that male politicians were refusing to allow them their rights as citizens, no longer believing that words could change things. It smoothed the metal on which deeds, not words, would be carved into the statues that would finally be cast and poured from furnaces when a wave of centenary celebrations led to recognition that women's power had stayed as resolute as steel all this time. It bore down in the hands of women who mended their aircraft and voyaged in blue skies where men and women had believed for thousands of years that only birds could fly. And in the hands of a sculptor who reshaped how we saw and felt the rolling moors of the north. We saw it again, not in the endless depictions of northern women as victims of a killer on the streets but in new generations of women forging their own futures in what could become their own northern powerhouse. And in a television time traveller who was just a little way ahead of where women are moving. And in the hands of thousands of little girls who haven't yet been told that those toys are not for them. Thank you. Hello, hello. Thank you so much, Dr. Kate. Thank you for having all, well, some of all of the women in the North. And thank you for giving us back their stories. Have we got any questions for Kate? I think we must have. I've got one to kick us off. What, have you got any cyclists? Yes, there's a cycling section. Beryl Burton, of course, who still holds the time trial record, doesn't she? And was played by... Maxine Peake. Uh, <laughs> and Mandy, it sounds like you know about cycling, so you know, okay. There's a cyclist called Mandy. Her surname has gone out of my head, but she held in the 80s um, a women's championship road trial record. And she kind of, she did this and then kind of finished her laps 
and walked off the course, and nobody recognised that she'd just won this victory, and she had to kind of let the stewards let her through, and some crowd members were going, she's just won, but she kind of diffidently wandered off. Um, and Lissy Armitstead, of course, of Otley, who's kind of had a really up-and-down ride, literally, um, but was spotted in a maths lesson at school and thought, I'd rather have... I'd rather try out for the cycling team than carry on with maths. So, yeah, there's a real cycling thread. Oh, you can imagine the woman walking off after she's won and not being noticed. So ties in with Anne, that sense of you presume no one's going to be interested, so you just... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, anyone got any, uh, any questions or anyone want to ask about any other Northern women that... Yes, sir. Again, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> so, um, how are we going to get to a situation where you don't need a PhD or a penis to be on stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily we are in that situation, but yes, could that be changed? Okay. Well, the, so there are cultural factors, I think. I mean, there's some really interesting research a sociologist called Katie Milestone did. She found in Manchester, um, only 23% of people in the creative industries are women, whereas the national figure is 42%. And she was like, why the heck's that in Manchester? But there's such a strong association of laddishness and creativity. And you see it in the kind of the bands, the, you know, Oasis, New Order, Joy Division. It's all blokes in parkers with their hands in the pockets, leaning against a brick wall. And that's also the Northern writer thing. And not, you can't be a Northern writer unless you're willing to be photographed in front of a brick wall or a terrace street. You're Tony white. Harrison, you're Simon Armitage, you're doing that. So we kind of change that culture, but we also change the structural things that mean that actually, you know, there's still a massive gender pay gap and women still do disproportionately more housework and childcare. It's like... I, I, so we need to focus on the big, those big structural issues, but I think something that gets constantly missed out of, of debates about northernness, when we talk about levelling up and the powerhouse, we don't talk about the historic thing of how a northern voice is seen as less serious, less authoritative, less important. So I know you asked about women specifically, but to, to, to northern women, there is this double whammy around how we perceive northernness. And I play up to it all the time. I, you know, I reinforce that northern stereotype. My whole persona is northern every woman. Um, and it's very helpful, very handy. It gets me into certain places. Poets, people are scared of poets as if they're like weird emissaries from another world. Give us a northern accent. We're not scary. Ian Macmillan, not scary, not scary. Um, Sorry, I feel like I've gone off on a tangent again. <laughs> Just the two and a half hours. But something about focusing on the cultural stuff, the little stuff, how we receive voices, being aware of that and not just forgetting it as a culture feels important to me. I want Andy Burnham, next time he runs for office, not to put forth a music playlist, which seems unimportant, of 50 blokes that he likes and Lisa Stansfield. I want him to actively <laughs> champion northern female musicians. It's at that level that I'm interested in small gradual changes and shifts. Because if it doesn't happen there, it won't happen in the bigger ways, maybe. Oh, thank you, Sia. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Have we got another, another question at all? What about us in Harrogate as a northern audience? 
Hang on. Uh, elucidate more. How are we doing? Oh, how are you doing as a Northern yeah. audience? How regret if we okay, first of all, you're lovely and much nicer than I thought you'd be. Yes. No offense, Harrogate. <laughs> I'll tell you for why. So so Harrogate is really is interesting because people go, the North is all working class towns. I know Harrogate has many pockets of deprivation, it's a more complex, nuanced figure. You are not all sitting here being solidly middle class, but Harrogate is much more middle class than the perceptions of, uh, of how people see the North. And it's somehow, and it, even though it goes a bit against the grain for me, because I'm always like, oh, focus on the people who have less of, of a voice and most marginalised, in a way, you've got to shout about the northern middle class more, and you've got to shout about the future more when you talk about the north, not the past. So in a weird way, Harrogate could be the, in fact, that's partly why you're here doing this, isn't it? The crucible of uh, culturally shifting a particular image of northernness and saying, here is, we are where the future's at. And um, so no pressure, but as an audience, you're the entire future of the North. <laughs> That's how you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. Do I do? Yes! Do I want to do one more top favourite? Yes, because I was like, the, so I'm a favourite woman, right? And I was like, oh, I missed her out. Um, so I'd be very surprised if anyone's heard of her. Um, so my first chapter is The Hildas. And it's, um, so it's Hilda Baker, the music hall comedian, who's a bit of a guiding spirit of the book, precursor to Victoria Wood. It's Hilda of Whitby. It's Hilda of Ogden, of course, Coronation Street. Oh, yes. But it's also, because, oh, the name Hilda means battle, strong, resilient, we battle on. So it's like the perfect northern name. Another barometer of my success, by the way, would be if people start naming their babies Hilda. I'll take dogs or hamsters, but I'd prefer babies. <laughs> Just as a note. Um, but the other Hilda is Hilda James. She was a swimmer from Garston in Liverpool. And in my first research, she nearly literally slipped under the surface because I saw something about, and I'd Googled again, like, swimmers, Leeds, swimmers, Liverpool, like trying to find people who'd been lost. And I saw something about a swimmer from Liverpool who had been supposed to go to the 1924 Olympics, the Chariots of Fire Olympics, and her mum had basically scuppered her chances because she refused to let her go to the Olympics. I mean, that's the ultimate grounding, isn't it? Um, but her mum was basically a bit jealous of her, and her mum would have had to go as chaperone, and she wouldn't, and it was all a bit complicated. Hilda James, it turned out, introduced the front crawl to Britain. She was the first swimmer to bring it because she um, was friends with the American swimmers who were all doing demonstrations and the winning Olympic medals in 1920. She went to America with them and she was the one who was like, hang on, we're doing this other weird stroke that's not really working for us. This is working for the Americans. She brought it back. She also, as a Liverpool girl, working class Liverpool lass who'd started off in a knitted swimming costume that sank down to her knees and that she could hardly swim, um, she ended up going to a dance in New York where Johnny Weissmuller, who played Tarzan but was also a champion swimmer, was there and they had a bit of a kiss and they had a bit of a thing. And that was one of the first things that made me imagine this as a film obviously starring Maxine Peake. Um, 
like where we've got that scene and she's got the American thing and she comes back, she starts winning every record going. Like she's breaking world records, she's breaking obviously all the country records. Um, she becomes known as the English Comet. She is our best medal hope swimming wise for the 1924 Olympics until this terrible family, you know, sort of dispute and her not being able to go. She ends up becoming a celebrity swimming coach on the Cunard lines and she marries an engineer and she has this quite quiet life and she swims occasionally and she occasionally will go back and do some of her demonstration shows where she'd do tricks like she'd do the periscope or she'd pretend to be a dolphin or she would do an old lady breaststroke because she was funny, you know, she was like Lily Parr, she was a character. But basically, she puts a medal in the attic, her me and her, her, they got a, um, a relay medal, her team, in 1920s, silver medal. She puts that medal away, all her other medals away, forgets about it. Cue forward to when she's 76. Her daughter-in-law gets her to go give a talk at an old people's home. And she's like, go on, you know, she felt she'd sort of lost life a bit. She persuades her to give this talk very modestly, very quietly bring out an Olympic or a silver medal and be like, well, I did this once and, you know, but my mum didn't, she did never approved. A local reporter gets to hear about it. She becomes a guest of honour at the Garston Baths Gala, where she sets some of her world records. And so she goes along and one of her old teammates, they'd always been really supportive of her, is there. And she says to him, can I swim? And he's like, yes. And her daughter-in-law had been afraid of this. She kind of knew there was something in Hilda wanted to get going again. So her old teammate introduces her. And Hilda, this 76-year-old woman who had had her cosy on under a Marks and Sparks cardi, you know, a sensible outfit, she goes to the edge of the pool and she's just like, oh, oh. And the crowd are completely baffled. And then she gets in very gingerly and does what they don't know was her former old lady breaststroke, fake stroke. And then she gets out, and this, so this is all from her grandson who spoke to her and, and gave her story. She gets out and she bombs down the pool and back with the, the free stroke, the front crawl that she brought to Britain. And the crowd are like on their feet, not believing it. And then she does some of the old demonstration stuff and be in a periscope and entertains the crowd. And then she gets out. And she has basically become herself again after 50 years. So the English Comet um, it still gets me and is my favourite story because we nearly lost that story. And I feel there are other stories like that. But yeah, her should definitely be a film with Maxine Peake. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Judge Kate Fox. Thank you for listening to Hiff Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.